As always, we are so appreciative of all of our Patreon supporters, and we would like to say a special hello and thank you to some of our newest members, including Michelle E. from Louisville, Kentucky, Julianne V. from Vancouver, Washington, Echo G. from Cottonwood Falls, Kansas, and let's not forget Stephanie N. from Pinellas Park, Florida, Louise Rickshaw from Friday Harbor, Washington, and Rachel L. from St. Peter's, Missouri. Thank you so much. And if you would like to hear your voice said by our amazing voices and to support us, you can find us at patreon.com. Just search for Murder in the Rain, where for $1, you'll get ad-free episodes. For only $5, you'll get full bonus episodes, including extra bloopers. And for $10, you will get your name set on the show. Thanks so much, guys. And just send us some suggestions of what we should do for Patreon. And because it's hard to think of stuff. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. Just a little upfront note regarding today's case. We're going to dip outside of the Pacific Northwest in the hopes we draw attention to a case from Alabama. Typically, we reserve cases that fall outside of the Pacific Northwest for our Patreon listeners, and this episode started out as a Patreon episode, but after we listened to it and gave it some thought, we decided to post it on our main feed. And perhaps it's fitting because this week is spring break for many Oregonians. A few weeks ago, I was, shocker, scrolling on TikTok, and I got a notification that someone had tagged me in a video. Naturally, I went to the video, and it featured a slideshow with a woman's voiceover, and the woman was explaining the mysterious death of her sister and all of the shady things that happened around her death. I was pretty taken with the story and immediately followed the account, and a few days later, I decided to make a video of the story for my followers. Since then, I cannot stop thinking about this case. I've joined the family's Facebook group. I've watched other creators' videos on YouTube and TikTok. I signed a petition that the family started. I feel like this case is reminiscent of some of the cases that got me into true crime podcasts. Kenrick Johnson, the boy that was found dead in his school's rolled-up gym mat. Kanika Jenkins, whose last moments were caught on hotel CCTV before she was found dead in a freezer, and Elisa Lamb, whose body was discovered in the water tank at the Cecil Hotel. These are just a few cases that people have debated and theorized about what really happened. The case I'm going to tell you about has the same questions because we may never know what happened in the four hours that the events went down. And maybe this case is more reminiscent of cases where the people investigating the case do a terrible job and maybe even cover up what really happened. You can make up your own mind about that. Unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of official coverage on this case. It's only being talked about because of the family, podcasters, social media creators, and the public. I'm unable to request documents, so do keep in mind that most of what I'll be telling you comes from friends and family. Today, I'd like to tell you about the mysterious death of Brianna Nugent Nix. Brianna Lee Nugent was born on May 13, 1987. In 2008, she met Stephen Nix and fell in love. Within two years, the pair married. Brianna was a nurse for about 12 years and was living in Hayden, Alabama with her husband. She was the primary breadwinner between her and her husband, Stephen. 
Brianna worked a lot. She had two jobs. Her primary job was full-time at Princeton Baptist Medical Center in Birmingham. She typically worked the 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift, I think roughly three to four days a week. On top of her full-time job, she had a part-time position at a clinic in Birmingham. This allowed her to pay for nearly all of the couple's expenses. Her husband, Stephen, worked odd jobs that really amounted to a bit of spending money, nothing substantial. Brittany, Brianna's sister, mentioned that while she didn't talk in depth to Brianna about her and Stephen's relationship, she had noticed that over the years he seemed to be more controlling, particularly over finances. Now, that's kind of irritating considering he wasn't the one contributing to their finances. He was apparently so relentless about her spending habits that she would have things she ordered online sent to other people's homes to keep it from him. Stephen would accuse her of having a shopping addiction, but meanwhile, he was spending her money shopping online too. Stephen also tracked Brianna's movements on a mobile app. Yikes. She often worked slightly varying hours depending on how many patients came to the hospital, so he would watch her movements on the app to ensure she was where she said she was. They had plenty of issues outside of his controlling her. Early in their relationship, he had cheated on her, which was an ongoing point of contention. He also regularly took her Adderall that was prescribed for her ADHD. Eventually, Brianna grew sick of their relationship and started looking into divorce in February of 2020. But within a month, she would be found dead. On March 2, 2020, a 911 call was made at 12.12 p.m. The man on the other line was Stephen Nix, and he mentioned that he had found his wife, Brianna, unresponsive in the bathroom. The operator instructed him to begin compressions, and paramedics arrived two minutes later and took over. After an incredibly valiant effort, paramedics were not able to revive Brianna, and she was pronounced dead. According to paramedics, there were a variety of needles scattered around her body, and there was an 18-gauge needle found in the bathroom sink. Her death was eventually ruled an accidental drug overdose. So what happened in the hours prior to 12.12 p.m.? The timeline has been questioned, but here's what we can assume. Brianna ended her 12-hour shift at the hospital around 7 a.m. on March 2nd. Her normal routine was to fill out some paperwork and then drive home. On a typical day, she would have returned home at roughly 8 a.m., her husband was the only person who could fill in what happened between the hours of 8 a.m. and 12 p.m., as no other person interacted with her. According to him, when Brianna returned home at 8 a.m., he was there. They went about their normal morning routine, and that early afternoon, Brianna was in the bathroom. Stephen mentioned that around 11 a.m., he heard a thump come from the bathroom, and he just assumed Brianna dropped her cell phone. Thinking nothing of it, he left to run errands, a visit to the bank, and a visit to the local dump. He says he returned home about an hour later, and at 12.05 p.m., he realized Brianna was still in the bathroom. Thinking it was odd, he attempted to open the door to check on her and found that the door was obstructed and he couldn't open it. After pushing, he realized Brianna was the obstruction. He was able to push her out of the way, and when he looked down, he saw that she was unresponsive on the bathroom floor with blue feet. So he called 911 and began compressions until paramedics arrived. Now that you know the basics of what happened during the events of March 2nd, let's get into all the weird and suspicious stuff. I mentioned the paramedics arrived within two minutes of the 911 call, thanks to them being very close by. I think it was like two blocks away. When they arrived, Stephen's parents were with him. They lived 
10 minutes away. This indicates they were called first. Mm -hmm. Brittany, Brianna's sister, got a phone call from Stephen moments after he found Brianna. And I, I'm going to assume it's after the paramedics arrived that he then called her family. At first, the call sounded normal to her. He was like, hey, what's up? But then he goes, your sister tried to kill herself. So Brittany thought it was a joke. But then once she realized he's being serious, she rushes over. And that took her about 14 minutes. When she walked in, she found Stephen sitting on the couch between his parents. And according to her, the parents looked like a normal level of distraught. But Stephen was just staring at the floor, showing no emotion. Now, we've talked about it so many times that you just you don't know how a person's going to react. You can't judge them. But if you asked Brittany, she will tell you that she thinks he looked scared and that he was scared that the paramedics were going to revive Brianna. Oh, which I think is after you hear the rest of this. Interesting. That would be plausible. I'll keep that in mind. I also feel that way about the phone call. That's weird. That it it is weird, but it's also maybe just in that moment, it's the first thing you think of. I mean, obviously, you would want to think the of the only thing I could think of initially help. is okay. I see needles. I see a needle mark in her arm. Maybe I don't want her to get in trouble. If I think I can revive her, maybe I'd call my fr- my parents for help. Yeah, I, doubt I just it. as someone who panics and like has their parents who live nearby, <laughs> I have been in moments where it's like been a crisis, and that's the first thing I think of. Not necessarily that calling medical or emergency personnel needed to happen, but. Not, you know, I'm just saying. I don't know. It could, it could happen. Tell me more. Tell me more. All right. Remember how Stephen had to make a trip to the local dump that day? Oddly, the trash was all still at home. You would think that if somebody was making a run to the dump, they would take out all the trash from their home and bring it with them, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's weird. Hmm. Now, an investigator who was working on the case early spoke to the paramedics. So they obviously were interviewing the paramedics after what had happened. They said that Stephen, while the paramedics were doing compressions and trying to revive her, Stephen was stepping over them, reaching for the garbage in the bathroom and taking it out. He then put it into the main garbage in the house, took that out and put it in the trunk of his car or his truck, rather. That is super weird. That's concerning. Like what was in the garbage that was that you had to remove? You could almost take the garbage away and say, doing literally anything else in the bathroom while your partner is being revived by medical personnel is concerning. There's nothing that would make sense in that moment. Yeah. An autopsy was conducted on Brianna, and that's why we know her cause of death was an accidental overdose. Fentanyl was found in her system, but it wasn't a lethal level. Her family was told that it was at a what they call therapeutic level, so manageable, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm guessing that means you could function throughout your day-to-day yeah, life. Yeah, maybe like a microdose situation yeah, or something. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Now, since she took Adderall and antidepressants, the combination was lethal. And as a nurse, you would think that would be something she would know. Right. Now, oddly enough, no one in her family has seen the autopsy results. Stephen is the only person who has seen them. And it's up to him to give permission for those results to be released to anybody else. And guess what? He, he refuses. Hasn't. He refuses to let the family see it. Why? Okay. I know. It, it just gets worse. <laughs> Two days after Brianna died, her husband texted Brittany, the sister, and he sent her a photo. And in the photo was a gloved hand holding a bottle of fentanyl. And he said, look, I found two empty bottles of fentanyl in one of her drawers. But 
what I don't think he knew is that Brittany and her mom had already checked that drawer. They knew there was nothing in it but underwear. Yet he's saying, oh, she must have had this secret drug addiction. Look at all these vials. Yeah, and there wasn't anything prior to that of her having a drug issue at all? Nothing. Mm. Nothing. So they are then like, where would she get the vials? Oh, from work. She works at a hospital. She works at a clinic. Well, they have talked to multiple people that she worked with, and the vials are not the same ones they carry. The labels are completely different. And, you know, since fentanyl has a street value, they also would be tracking it very closely. I mean, most hospitals, you have to use a thumbprint or you have to have a code. They mark who is asking mm-hmm. for it, what patient. It. Right. Yeah. So it would be very, very hard to get away with stealing a prescription like that. Friends, family, and colleagues never noticed anything indicating Brianna might have a drug problem, even though this was hinted at by her husband. Now, I know some people might say, oh, you can get away with hiding drug problems. But at some point, there will be a hint of it. Somebody will notice. It's going to be like weird behavior, weight loss, money issues, Not showing up to work. Right. But this was not the case with her. Nothing. Nothing was abnormal with Brianna. Also, as a nurse, she was subjected to random drug testing and she never failed. Not once. Brittany had learned about significant bruising on Brianna's hands and feet. That was noted by Stephen when he first found her body that her feet were blue. And it was also her hands. So her sister was wondering what else happened to her. So she asked Stephen, was it possible that maybe Brianna fell and hit her head in the bathroom? Like, was there any kind of injury to her head? Was there blood? And he said, no. He assured her that that was not the case. There were no injuries to her face. There was hardly any blood, just a little bit from a needle mark on her arm. He was pushing the narrative that Brianna was a drug user and died because of it. And Brittany wasn't necessarily saying that's not true. What she wanted to see was the proof of it and to just understand how he found her body because everything was being kind of hidden from her. Yeah, he had all the information. Right. Yeah. Brittany went to the funeral home to see Brianna's hair and makeup prior to the funeral. While she was there, she spoke to the funeral director about what Stephen had said regarding the lack of blood and there not being a head injury. And the funeral director was taken aback. They pulled out a bag of Brianna's clothing to show Brittany and it was drenched in blood. And they said that it was likely from the paramedics doing compressions that she would have bled out at that moment. And this was very odd to Brittany because Stephen had told her there was hardly any blood and he also told everyone he did compressions first and that he nearly passed out doing compressions so wouldn't the blood have gotten on him where are they saying that the blood is coming from i am not quite sure that she must have had some sort of wound that as they were well we'll get into the state of her body um i don't know if the compressions would have caused it to come out of her mouth or anything but all i know is the shirt was far more drenched than he alluded to. Hmm. And if he had been rigorously doing compressions, he would have had blood on him or seen it. So either he's lying about doing compressions, right? And he didn't do them and the paramedics did, and that's when the blood came out. Or he just lied about the blood to begin with, which both are weird. Like, why lie about it? To further show Brittany the extent of her sister's bruising, the funeral director wiped off some of the makeup from Brianna's face to show her. Her forehead had something that looked like a carpet burn. There was a bruise across her nose and and her chin. In fact, her chin was described as like completely black from bruising. 
Stephen never indicated that her face had any injuries. So where would those have come from, too? If she was just in the bathroom injecting herself, why did her face look like that? And even if you fell because you were overpowered by the drugs, you would still only fall once. Right. And where would the carpet burn come from in a bathroom? Right. You would have like hit your chin or hit your forehead or the side of your head, but then you'd be down. It wouldn't be multiple injuries in the same space. Right. And I don't get the feet. Like we can we can go all yeah, into yeah, that yeah. later. But now even more disturbing, Brittany also discovered that Brianna had over 80 needle punctures all over her body, some of which were consistent with an 18 gauge needle. As I mentioned, her hands and feet were fully covered in bruises. The funeral director told Brittany she had never seen anything like it, even with known drug addicts. It was just not a normal way to see a body, that type of bruising. It makes me think she was bound and then when she died and the blood settled. Well, and Brittany says she described it as it looked like self-defense, like you're holding up your hands to stop someone from hitting you or something. And your hands are taking the brunt of it. But again, she doesn't have anyone to say that's consistent because she can't see the autopsy results. Which is shocking because this does not sound like an overdose. Right. How could this have possibly been? And here's the other thing. We know that that happened sometime after 7 a.m. because Brianna had a break at work with a colleague and the colleague specifically remembers her hands being normal. So somewhere from 7 a.m. to 12 p.m., her hands and feet got totally battered. I mean, sure, somebody could maybe slam their hands in a cabinet or something, but why? This person has shown no And it wouldn't be all four. Right. You just one at a time going through your limbs. Many people would agree that a veteran nurse with a drug problem and ample access to needles wouldn't use an 18-gauge needle. It's much too big. So for those of you who don't know, like me, I had to go online. This kind of needle is usually used to draw something like blood or draw medicine out of a vial and then moved into a syringe to be injected. You would use a tiny needle. And there are people that say, oh, uh, you know, I had this on my TikTok. Someone said, well, I'm a drug user. I would have used anything. Would you have used anything if you had access to everything? Right. No. You would use something small that doesn't hurt going in, something you could easily hide. It's just it doesn't make sense for someone who's around needles all day to use something like that. To give people a better idea. Did you say that was 18? 18 gauge. So that's the average gauge used for piercing. That's like a nose piercing needle. So it's that hardier you know we're not talking about because it's uh, taking out the flesh yeah we're not talking about like a vaccine needle where it's teeny tiny (laughs) it's it's a hardy yet when they walked into the bathroom there were teeny tiny needles everywhere yet she had all these punctures from 18 gauge and also some of them were in places that she's unlikely to reach like behind each arm you know, you might do it with your, say you're right-handed, you might do that with your left arm, but can you do that? I mean, why would you do that? Even if you are an addict and you're deep in your addiction, from what I've seen on TV, it's, you know, between the toes, Mm -hmm. it's your arms. There are different places that you wouldn't really expect, but certainly not things that are, like, difficult to reach. And on both my TikTok and the sister's TikTok, several people who had drug addictions came forward and said, I would have never used that needle. That's crazy. And I, 
and sorry, I say crazy, but really, I can't imagine puncturing yourself that much unless you were under a psychotic break. Mm-hmm. Like that's the only reason. And mm-hmm. there was no evidence that she had mental issues, except for maybe an appointment with a therapist a few days prior. Also, once that drug starts affecting you, which is rapid, um, how longer? Yeah, can you how go? how much more can you inject yourself? Well, how could you get past ten, let alone up to eighty? True, and you know she didn't have a huge dose in her system. I don't, you know, I don't know how that. Yeah, works. like how long that com the combination would take, but it's just very still. odd. It's a very odd behavior, and unlike anything I've ever heard about. The state of Brianna's body was not the last time Brittany would find inconsistencies in Stephen's story. When he initially told her what happened to Brianna, he mentioned that he had been out of the house for about an hour. The police asked Stephen to put his statement into writing, and he had mentioned as a joke, well, my handwriting's really messy, so Brittany offered to write it for him. She noted that when he retold the story for the statement, he now said 30 minutes. Now, 30-minute difference isn't that big of a deal, so maybe it was just a slip up, but it was a lot different from what he told the very first investigator. He told that first investigator that he was gone since eight in the morning for at least three hours. So why the difference? Three different stories on the same event. That's fishy. Stephen refused to unlock Brianna's phone for the police. Thankfully, Brittany was there and she knew the phone code and unlocked it for them. And they found a couple of interesting things. There was a heated text exchange between Brianna and Stephen where he accused her of cheating on him and she brought up his current affair he was having. There was a missed call from Stephen at 7.53 a.m., which would have been very close to the time she arrived at home. The notification for this call was unopened. There was an unknown appointment reminder for the next day, and that notification was also unopened. Now, the heated text exchange really alludes to messiness in the marriage, but why are the other things interesting? Several people online have been chatting about this. I'm in a couple of different groups I mentioned, and we've been talking about it. The notifications were unopened since, say, 7.53 a.m. Stephen claims Brianna was awake at 11 a.m. What millennial, besides Alicia, isn't (laughs) going to look at their phone for three hours? You would think she's, like, listening to music while she's showering or setting her alarm because she's going to go to sleep after a 12-hour shift. And even Stephen himself said he thought she dropped her phone while in the bathroom, indicating she takes her phone into the bathroom. Why would all those notifications be unopened? Yeah, especially when you're wrapping up your day. It doesn't make sense. You know, you're kind of like you're settling in. You're, you know, you've had a long 12-hour shift and you're just going to like shut down. Yeah, you would be. Yeah. Or at least clear them. The last That's usually thing... what I do. I'm like, oh, people called and texted. Exactly. Clear all notifications. Thank I mean, you. I turn my notifications off personally, but the last thing I do before I get in to take a nap or go to bed is double check that there's no message waiting for yeah. me. And then I set my alarm and I put it down next to me. And I'm not saying everyone's like that, but from what I can tell from her family, she was like that. Well, and it's also hard to imagine several notifications It'd be Mm -hmm. one thing if it's like, oh, yeah, I've got that appointment, but I'll deal with that later or I'll leave that as a reminder or something. What's your first thought when you hear someone didn't look at their phone for three hours and their husband was the last person with them? That they didn't have access to that phone. Exactly. After looking through her phone, police asked Stephen if they could take it to do further analysis. He declined. 
Why are they asking him? We'll get to it. We'll get to it. They then asked if they could search his truck and her car. He allowed them to search her car, but declined allowing them to search his truck without a warrant. Before the police could ever execute a warrant to search his truck, his father began emptying the contents of his truck into his own car. This was noticed by investigators on the scene. They saw him carrying the trash bag that that was taken from the home, from the bathroom, and then while she was being revived. Mm -hmm. So they asked him to drop it, and they searched it. Inside were more syringes and black latex gloves, the same gloves that were later seen in photos sent by Stephen to Brittany when he found the fentanyl bottles. So that's weird. I'm glad they at least stopped the dad and looked in the stuff. Because now it's not in your truck. That doesn't mean they collected it. But at least it's documented. Mm -hmm. Days after Brianna's death, another woman was seen entering the house. This is the same woman that Brianna and Stephen were fighting about in their text exchange, a woman that he was having an affair with, allegedly, and who he had previously had an affair with before they got married. And prepare yourself for the anger you're about to feel. This woman was seen wearing Brianna's necklace, a necklace made for her by her mother that her mother and sister had requested Stephen to give back to them after she died. There's a photo attached to this post of that woman wearing the necklace, all cozy next to Stephen. It's very disturbing. Even if this is all allegations and nothing comes of this and he did nothing. should still look into it. He did nothing to anyone. That alone is just scuzzy. That's just gross. Sure is. Why do you care if you have the thing that actually means a lot to these other people instead of gifting it to your girlfriend? Brittany and her mother went to Stephen and Brianna's house after he had called them to tell him he had a bunch of Brianna's stuff to give them. When they arrived, he handed them like a pile of workout clothes and T-shirts with holes. All of her other stuff was bagged up for him to give away. He had already given a bunch of her stuff to his sister and girlfriend, apparently. Her sister was like, didn't want to start a fight. So she asked, I want a couple of these sweatshirts that she had, these hoodies that I like. So he went to go get them but instead he pulls out her panty drawer the same one where he found the fentanyl bottles and he makes this big scene of emptying it out in front of them and inside's like a bloody napkin and a bunch of needles and they're like thinking we've already searched this drawer and we knew there was nothing in it so it was like he was trying to plant evidence and to gaslight them it's insane and how rude to not give all of their stuff to her family Yeah, because all that does is show that you seem that much more spiteful and that much more possibly motivated to do something harmful to that person. There's obviously some hatred there, or or at least, at the very least, not happy feelings. And I think at this point, everyone's like, why bother with this guy? Because another story from Brittany, the sister, Stephen had been talking to one of her friend's husbands, and the husband said that he said to him, I know people high up in Blunt County. I could get away with anything. And this guy he was talking to, he didn't know was a police officer from another county. And so the guy's like, you know, I'm a police officer from another county. And he like walked away. But he had already incriminated himself there. And this just blows my mind because when the paramedics arrived along with Stephen's parents and Stephen was Stephen's or not when the paramedics arrived, excuse me, when Brittany arrived. So the paramedics were there. Stephen's parents were there. Guess who else was there? 
Stephen's uncle, who is a deputy police officer for the Hayden Police Department. This was his day off, and yet he was there fully dressed in uniform and working the scene. On whose behalf? Yeah, and they have no record of what time he checked in that day. So why was he there? Why was he involving himself? Or what he looked at or what he touched or what he removed because no one asked him questions because he was in a uniform. So is that the person he was talking about being high up to cover his ass? Now, there are plenty of people who've piped up when her family started posting about this. People from the area are like, yeah, everyone knows Blunt County is crooked. It's a boys club. Stephen very well could get away with whatever. Where is Blunt County? In Alabama. Oh, gotcha. As of today, that woman is living in Brianna's home with Stephen. You can find them all over Facebook, cozied up together. It is very clear it is, it is his girlfriend. There's even uh, people who claim she has like a fake name and goes on to Brianna's Facebook groups to like get, I don't know, get involved and tell Stephen what she's reading. Like it is very weird. She's clearly inserted herself into these people's lives. Stephen and his girlfriend are also living off of the $160,000 life insurance policy that Brianna had. One that Stephen had convinced her six months prior to her death to pay a premium on so that the event of her death would get a bigger payout than than earlier, right? It's like double. Right. A, they have no kids. Why would you need a premium on that? Well, because he wants the bigger payout. He was asking people Will I still get a payout if it was suicide? Does that still count? Uh, can I get it now, even though the death certificate wasn't printed? Like this guy, I mean, he's nothing but red flags. Right. To make matters worse, the evidence in this case was mishandled. The evidence was left on an investigator's desk for 15 months rather than stored in an official evidence locker. That investigator was eventually removed from the case and removed from the Blunt County Sheriff's Department for unknown reasons. Those vials that Stephen miraculously found were photographed by barehanded cops. So they tainted it. Mm -hmm. It was ultimately thrown away. And to this day, we don't even know how much evidence actually remains. Most of it was mishandled or thrown away. Even her phone. So the family had asked about, uh, what did you find in her phone records? And they're like, oh... Uh, it was left out too long. The data was we couldn't accept. We couldn't access it. What? Excuse me. No. The battery died. What are you talking and the about? Sister's like, do you think I'm dumb? Like, wh why are you trying so hard to thwart us on this? It's bizarre. Maybe there is something to the people alleging that he's saying I can get away with anything because it looks cocky. It looks mm -hmm. arrogant. And the cops look the same like oh we don't have to bother it's just an overdose so who cares if, we'll just leave if that this evidence was out. true like all they have to do is show the autopsy results and give the family a little bit of information and they will back off they have said multiple times we are willing to accept this was a suicide or an accidental overdose i just need you to prove it to me mm -hmm. so far so just prove it yeah that's not been the case so stephen nix has never been arrested he's never been named a person of interest he hasn't even been interrogated Instead, he just sits inside his house with his new girlfriend living off the money from his wife's death. And I think everyone can understand why Brianna's family currently wants to file a wrongful death suit. Unfortunately, the lawyers they've reached out to in the past, they will not help without the autopsy results. And the police refuse to give them access because they say it is, quote, an ongoing criminal investigation. If 
like you're you're contradicting yes, yourself. Yes, which is it? Which is it exactly? Um, and sadly, there is a two-year statute of limitations on wrongful death, and that expires in March of this year. So the family has gone ahead and filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Stephen Nix, and that was filed February 16th. So that's good. I'm hoping it doesn't just get dismissed. They need help. They need the DA to actually speak up for this. And I believe I heard that it will go before the um, the grand jury soon. To, to hear the evidence okay. so hopefully that's promising that is promising but without the police helping a little bit here or the da like backing the family i don't know how far they can get it makes you wonder what the importance or um how that uncle the officer like how he's viewed in the community mm-hmm. because i guess the question is what would be the point in protecting this kid from his behaviors, you know, it's one thing to be like, oh, my uncle's a cop. That doesn't necessarily mean you're protected. So it makes me wonder, what does that family mm-hmm. have going on? Or does is the office, is that officer really highly regarded so he can't have his nephew? Well, he's a deputy. He can't be that high. Up, That's what you know? I mean. Like, what would be the benefit or they're just as far as like I someone know, said, they're just all so crooked that it just doesn't that's, matter. That's what I'm worried. Or they just didn't want to deal with the investigation like this. But here's the thing. Like we're getting traction. We're oh, on the good. cusp of like making progress. Right. The more people that care about this case and share it. I mean, there's tons of podcasters and YouTube creators making these videos. The more pressure we put on that district attorney, they're going to have to do something. Yeah. You can't just sweep it under the rug always. The DA, Pamela Casey, is super frustrating and problematic. This lady blocks anybody who makes a comment on her Facebook about Brianna. So it just goes to show how interested she is in helping. That's why we got to keep putting that pressure on her. Another thing that I've done with other campaigns similar to this, you can straight up call the office. So that way you're not getting blocked and you're annoying them. So you can call 205 625 4171. It'll probably just be an answering machine or you can choose to leave a message for the district attorney and just say, you know, just calling out of concern regarding this case and and would like to see it released. And if you do that pretty often and if everyone did that pretty often, it'd get pretty annoying. So that's a great point. I like it. Just saying overwhelm that voicemail. Fill it up. There are many ways you can help Brianna's family and keep up on the latest information on this case. First, you can help by donating to their GoFundMe account. It's called Justice for Brianna Nugent Nix. This money helps them with their lawyer fees, the private investigator they hired, and anything else that kind of comes up on your quest for justice. Her family also runs a Facebook page with the same name, and Brittany, her sister, posts almost daily all the up-to-date information, her progress with the wrongful death suit, any new information she gets, as long as it's not something that would actually Um, contribute to a criminal case she posts it and they're on instagram justice for brianna nugent and on tiktok justice for brianna and we'll have all of this information below so that you can click on it and follow it their hope is the more platforms they're on the more people will share brianna's story so that that movement can happen on the case one way we can really support them is by following all those social medias and by signing their petition to have her autopsy report made public. And that's on change.org, and you can search Make Brianna Nix Autopsy Report Public. 
So I know we recently recorded the Brianna Nugent Nix case or yes. the episode, right? But it's been a very active case and I already have an update even though we just recorded. Oh, wonderful. I know. So Steve Fisher, he is the Nugent's independent investigator. So they hired him to help them with the case. He posted on Twitter this week basically to give everyone an update and to warn us that the family's going to be kind of low key for a while. So this is what he said. There was a very important meeting that was held on February 22nd, 2022, and the attendees of the meeting were himself, Steve Fisher, Brittany Nugent, Brianna's sister, DA Pamela Casey, Assistant DA Scott Gilliland, Sheriff Mark Moon, and Investigator Chad Long. And it was a seven-hour meeting, and what they did was review the following. Three-plus hours of body cam footage from the officers that were on scene at the house, uh, the 911 audio from Stephen's phone call, the response reports, phone records, which I imagine were Brianna's phone records because I don't think they've had a warrant for Stephen's yet, hospital records, the autopsy, oh, the autopsy photos, and the toxicology report, which we were wonderful, really waiting on, right? Yeah. So that's exciting. Witness statements, other documents, and evidence, some of which they were not even aware of. So the family didn't get copies of anything and they weren't allowed to take photos and as you can imagine it's a lot of information to process and they're not just being quiet because of that um, what's happening is I guess it's already happened on February 23rd the grand jury was going to review that same information wow so this is huge for the case guys yeah now they have this could definitely lead to charges it absolutely could they have 45 days to review all the information so the Nugents are not allowed to talk about it. They're not going to post about it. Um, they're still like active in the Facebook group, but they're not directly addressing right, it right. Um, because they don't want to ruin this in any way, right? Now, there are three outcomes that could come from the grand jury. One is called a no bill. That just means there's no probable cause and it's probably going to die with that, basically. Or they could say, well... I'm interested, but we need further investigation, mm. which is good. Like, that's the scenario yeah, we can live with. Yeah, that's at least there's enough there to right. keep going. But the other option is they find probable cause and they indict Steve wow. Nix. So that's what I'm hoping for, personally. So we'll have an update around, like, April 9th or 10th after that 45 days. I'm sure they're going to be forthcoming with all their followers. And I guess I should say maybe I should reserve my judgment of the DA until we see what comes out of this, but I'm not going to apologize for how I criticized her because I really think they could have communicated better. No, and it takes that kind of criticism. If people didn't speak up and didn't push for yeah. things, they would just sit there and go, okay, that one can go in the file. It's done. So yeah. it, it takes those conversations to make this kind of thing happen. So yeah, now it's now it's not so I take back my criticism, but I appreciate that mm -hmm. you're actually doing the right thing. And I think, you know, I don't think this would have happened without the family Absolutely. pushing like they did. So I'm so happy to see this. I'm really, really hopeful that the grand jury, in the very least, will ask for an investigation. But I really think if they see half of what I see and they're seeing way more, then it's going to be uh, indictment. Yeah. So we'll get wow. back to you on what that. What an update. I know. It's exciting. <laughs> She's clearly inserted or insert little February something. Oh, um, that doesn't help. Let me say it. I'll do it. I know this part. Hold on. It's February 21st, 2022. 
Emily's episode, March 22nd. I'm sorry. <laughs> Were we all just talking on top of each other? That was you the goal. fucking asshole. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. Leash, I'm in a real pickle. Oh no, what's up? Well, now that I've cut caffeine from my life, I'm wanting to try new coffees. But I'm specifically looking for something with small batch roasting that's woman-owned and has a paranormal theme. Wow, that is incredibly specific. But you won't believe this. I know of a coffee that fits all of those needs and is owned by Portlanders. It's Sinister Coffee and Creamery. Coffee and Creamery? That's right. Throughout the year, the ladies at Sinister Coffee and Creamery work to make creative, spooky, and delicious coffee. And from April to November, they make small batch, rolled, and Philadelphia-style ice cream, which they serve at the PSU Farmer's Market every Saturday. I love this decaf coffee. Its flavor is so robust, it's hard to believe it was decaf. Not only do I love the taste, but the adorable Ouija planchette-inspired packaging and clever names like premonition, apparition, and relic. So mark your calendars for the PSU Farmer's Market in April, where we just might show up to scoop. To get your hands on their delicious coffee, you can follow them on IG at SinisterCMC and visit SinisterCoffeeAndCreamery.com. When you order, use code MIR10 for 10% off. That's SinisterCoffeeAndCreamery.com with code MIR10 for 10% off.